Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm great, David. I'm getting my second shot this afternoon. In fact, oh. right after we do this. Ah, well, that's, that's wonderful news. Um, I, I'm only half vaccinated, so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting my second shot uh, whenever, whenever they let us younger people get our second shots, Frank. Um, <laughs> all right, so uh, one of the big debates uh, in the Senate right now is not necessarily over, over policy, but over Senate rules, and in particular, uh, the rule that allows for what is called the filibuster. Uh, and this has come, uh, some people have come to the defense of the filibuster, including Mitch McConnell, who says the filibuster is, is one of the sort of hallmarks of American democracy. Uh, and in this, he's been joined by, by people across the aisle, including Kristen Sinema uh, from Arizona and Joe Manchin from West Virginia, um, who have defended the, the filibuster as a, as a uh, parliamentary technique uh, against some pretty heavy criticisms from lots of other Democrats who have been very hostile to the filibuster. So we want to talk about the origins of the filibuster uh, and its its long and somewhat complicated history. Should we say what it actually is, though, for the benefit of our listeners? Yes, because... Particularly our non-American listeners. Yes. So, so you want to describe what a... Because it... it <coughs> excuse me. Can mean, you know, the, the definition is actually a bit fuzzy about what a filibuster is and what a filibuster isn't. But but generally, what is a filibuster? Right. Well, I mean, we'll get back. We'll talk about the origins of it. Might even talk about the origins of the word. But but in terms of what it means in the current parlance, mm. I think uh, the requirement in the Senate is that for most legislation, sixty votes are required to al- to end debate and allow a vote on legislation. That doesn't require sixty votes to pass legislation. It's to end the debate on legislation. There are exceptions, and we'll talk about the, the origins of those exceptions, where for uh, judicial nominees and for uh, budgetary matters. And executive branch of Yes, yeah. yep. Thank you. Um, but the this 60-vote requirement to end debate means, effectively, you need 60 votes in support of a piece of legislation to allow the procedural motion to go forward to end the debate to allow the vote, if that makes sense. This becomes more complicated because the filibuster and people who've seen Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or the Stackhouse filibuster episode of the West Wing, the image of of a politician or a senator standing up and speaking for endless amounts of time to keep debate going isn't what actually happens today, except in a few cases. What happens at the moment is senators can privately put a hold on a bill basically saying they will not support the end of uh, debate allowing legis- a vote to go forward so they don't even actually have to do the, the speaking part right. of it. Which means... Give me a confused yeah, look, David. No, what it mean, it's just because I think, you know, people who are who are listening to this who aren't familiar with the intricacies of the U.S. Senate just makes clear what this means. It means that, that everybody in the House, you know, the majority of the House can vote for something. The majority of senators can want to pass something. The president can want to sign it. But if 41 senators, that is to say 41% of the Senate, wants to oppose something, it doesn't become a law. That's right. That's right. So uh, de facto, the way the filibuster has evolved, Mm. you need a supermajority in the U.S. Senate to pass most legislation. Or at least there's always the threat that you need that. And because... Because the Senate is based on two senators from every state, that means in practice you could end up with a situation where, like, people who are representing 15, 20 percent of the country 
can effectively veto what everybody else wants to do. Yes, that's right. That's right. And it should be said, this is held up by its defenders. Um, and you mentioned some of them a few minutes ago, but it's been held up historically by its defenders um, over, the, over the decades and, and, and centuries as a kind of hallmark of Senate procedure that's really important. And the Senate calls itself the world's greatest deliberative body. Um, and that this is a unique feature of the American system because it protects the rights of minorities, uh, and I'm talking about minority opinions in, sure. in, in this case, uh, from, from overbearing majorities. That, that's, that's the defense such as it is of the filibuster. That's what I was taught in middle school. Yeah, well, about, that's right. Yeah, that's um, a... I've, got a, I've got a quotation for you, David, from, from Alexander Hamilton. Um, about this, uh, he, you know, the guy, the, the Broadway yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. show writer. Um, <laughs> He's really good at rapping, that guy. Yeah, yeah. So, so Hamilton, in, in the Federalist Papers, um, which were, of course, essays that were, were written uh, by Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay in defense, of, or to promote the ratification of the Constitution back in 1788 and 89, Hamilton wrote about supermajorities and why they shouldn't be a feature of the American Constitution. So there's some confusion about the filibuster, even among people like Mitch McConnell, who claim this has always been part of the system. It's not part of the Constitution. No. In fact, the Constitution was adopted in part because the Articles of Confederation required supermajorities to do things, which made it very, very difficult to govern the country. So here's my quote from Hamilton from the, from the uh, Federalist Papers. What at, first sight may, what at first sight may seem a remedy is, in reality, a poison. Its real operation, that is requiring supermajorities, is to embarrass the administration, to destroy the energy of a government, and to substitute the pleasure, caprice, or artifices of an insignificant, insignificant turbulent, or corrupt junto to the regular deliberations and the decisions of a respectable majority. So Hamilton is describing exactly what you did a minute ago, David, saying, uh, you know, a small group of people can obstruct, if you require a supermajority, can obstruct the will of the majority, of a respectable majority. Well, whatever, whatever that means, right? Yeah, whatever that means. So it, it, this was not part of, it's not part of the Constitution. It's a Senate procedure. We'll talk about yeah. its origins in a second. But the belief that this is somehow, uh, it is a unique feature of the American political system, but it's not, we don't see these globally. I can't no. think of another example well, where super... I mean, supermajorities are required in the Constitution for things like declaring war, amendments. ratifying treaties, yeah. you know, certain things, but but uh, amendments, but not for day to day stuff. It was never the intention. Yeah. Sorry, so I, I well, just thinking about this point about about how this fits on a global context. I tried. I mean, I looked this morning because I was thinking about this. Couldn't find any other country that that allows filibusters in this way. Um, and actually, a lot most states don't allow filibusters in the state legislature. There's 14 states that have some version of the filibuster. Some people may remember Wendy Davis filibustering a, an anti-abortion bill in Texas in, in 2013. Um, that um, you know uh, ultimately didn't work in her favor in the long run. Um, but the majority of states don't have it. So it's not as if this is a, a model of democracy that other people say, hey, we need that. Let's, let's, let's adopt, let's copy ourselves in the United States. It's like the kind of the... Electoral college—it's like something that 
you know, we in the United States does, but nobody else says, ooh. Yeah, but it's not really even like that, that, because at least the Electoral College has its origins in the 18th century. You can see the logic behind it, even if it doesn't apply today. Yeah, no, yeah. no, but, but, but yeah. and it is a feature of the Constitution. This is something that people believe is part of the Constitution, Constitution. and it is not. Now, I mean, if it, I mean, the, the, if you're looking for the filibuster in the Constitution, the one place you see sort of a hint at it is basically the, the part where it says that Congress gets to make its own rules. Right. Um, you know, and... Um, I think if we're, we're trying to sort of pinpoint the origins uh, of the filibuster and try to make sense of it over time. I think basically understand that the Congress gets to decide what its own rules are, and each house has its own different set of rules, and those rules change over time, right? Um, so that that the Constitution provides says there's going to be these two legislative bodies, but how they actually conduct business is up to them, right? Um, you know, when they they establish rules right after they write of the Constitution, initially both the House and the Senate have actually remarkably similar rules that basically adopt the same rule book. But then in the 200 years since, they've sort of deviated from that pretty significantly, uh, where they've gone in very different directions about how they operate, in part because of how big they are, but for other reasons as well. And it's when in one of these rule changes, you want to talk about Aaron Burr and how we yeah, sort of so the accidental creation in some ways? Yeah, of the so... so Aaron Burr, who will be known to many of our listeners, is the guy who kills Alexander Hamilton. Hey, you just mentioned him. He's the guy who's good at rapping, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, in 1805, Aaron Burr was the outgoing vice president of the United States in early 1805. And as some listeners will know, the vice president is the president, serves as the president of the U.S. Senate. And so in early 1805, Alexander Hamilton, sorry, Aaron Burr. Right after killing Hamilton. Right after killing Hamilton in the summer of 1804. So, so Burr, Burr's political career seemed to be coming to an end. Anyway, in a, he, he had been a legislator before. He'd been a, a senator uh, before. And he was essentially tidying up the Senate's rules. Um, I don't think there was anything nefarious about this. I mean, t people tend to ascribe mm. nefarious motives to Aaron Burr for everything he ever did. I don't think in this case it was. I think it was sort of a housekeeping matter. And he recommended removing from the Senate rule book the motion that was used to end debates because he thought it was redundant. Mm. Uh, it wasn't necessary because debates just sort of came to an end and that would be fine. And so Burr took this out of the Senate rule book well, he, he recommends it. Well, he recommends it. Yeah, yeah so, uh, that, that's correct. Yeah, so, so that's right, David, because strictly speaking, and not strictly speaking, actually speaking, speaking, the Senate votes on its own rules. Mm. So Burr made this recommendation, the Senate voted on it, uh, and, and, it and it's removed. And so that's the origins of the filibuster, because now, uh, now, early 1805, yes. theoretically, and this is an age, we're, we're not quite at the age of, of great oratory yet, that's coming in your period, mm. but, but theoretically a senator could speak for an unlimited period of time um, once, this, once this restriction was removed. Uh, whether Burr realized that would happen... Or not, I, I yeah. I'm I mean, some descriptions of this event suggest that he's like saying, like, y'all have too many rules. Here's an example of one rule you may not need, and then you know, then they decide, oh, well, let's get kill that rule. You know, it doesn't seem like yeah, it although, was. Although, a, although, let's be clear, Burr was a New Yorker, so he didn't say y'all like you, another New Yorker who does say y'all. <laughs> it's, it's a good second person <laughs> plural. It's I a like, very good second person plural, actually, um, but. I, I, Folk I, like us say it, David. We sound stupid. Well, I, I lived in the South for a long time, so I, <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, so, so, so. Burr, um, 
Burr removes or recommends its removal. Yeah. Which means then, as you point out, like that debate then continues for as long as debate continues, even if it just means one person is decides to speak for as long as they want to speak, right? So that's right. Theoretically, yes. The unending faculty meeting of the Senate. <laughs> Um, Actually, you know, that's a very good analogy. I mean, I think the Senate does bear a close resemblance to a lot of academic departments. Well, we'll, yeah, we'll stop the metaphor there in terms of getting in trouble with our colleagues. Um, But it's not, you know, if that's the birth of of the filibuster, and, uh, you know, that's probably as good a point as any, it's not as if people immediately then jump on this technique and say, ooh, this is a way we can use our ability to talk forever as a, as a, as a means of, of effectively vetoing legislation. Yes, except I will say one thing. There is, there is a little bit of a precedent for this. William McClay, who's a great, he's, a, he's an okay senator from Pennsylvania in the very first Congress. Mm. He's a great diarist. He's a very um, dyspeptic diarist. Um, and he complains as early as the 1790s about Virginians talking us to death. So, um, but the, you know, and, and, and running out the clock on legislation, but it doesn't happen that often, it, it's, to be fair. Mm-hmm. And we don't, as I said, we, political oratory is not really a thing in 1805 in the, to, in the way that mm-hmm. it will become a generation later. In fact, I want to hand things over to you for that because, um, and I think that's part of the, becomes part of the problem mm-hmm. as, as political oratory becomes an important activity in the United States, frankly, a form of entertainment, mm. I think it, it leads to the emergence of a new kind of politics and a new kind of politician. And these are the guys who are going to, who will exploit the filibuster. Mm. We also get a very, very different political context, um, which does it. So can you say a bit about this? Let's, well, let's leave my period behind. You know, if we're trying to find the, the first sort of real filibuster, um, some people point to 1841, which right. is in the midst of a really divisive and partisan political era. This is the sort of great fight between the, 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 the Democrats, who are the people who like Andrew Jackson, and the Whigs, who are people who loathe Andrew Jackson. Um, and the first filibuster uh, is, is kind of over something petty and stupid. It's over who's going to be the publisher of the Congressional Globe. So it's over a sort of a patronage appointment. Uh, and the Democrats tried to delay this so they can sort of push it into the next uh, Congress, uh, and they filibuster for 10 days. Um, that is to say, they, they maintain control of the floor, and they keep talking about, about who they think should have the publishing rights for the Congressional Globe. Ultimately, that's a filibuster that fails. It's also worth saying, it wasn't called a filibuster yet. That term um, didn't exist until the decade later, into the 1850s, um, which I think says to me about how... Rarely this technique was used. They didn't even have a name for it yet. Right. For our, uh, this may be a small group of people, but for some of our British listeners, mm. or, or certainly um, for our listeners in the cricket-playing world. Yes. And that's not to say that people who live in the cricket-playing world necessarily follow cricket, I realize mm. The filibuster's effectively batting out the fifth day for a draw. And letting time run out in a cricket match. And so so you're not trying to get anything done. You're just going to slow things down right. and wait for the clock to run out. That's what the filibuster is. Yeah. It's not meant to change anybody's mind. No, 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 no. It's meant to, you're, you're going to just play and play and play until you're out of time. Yeah, and one of the things about the Congress in the 19th century is 
that they're out of session more often than they're in session. Right. And so if, if you know that Congress is going to adjourn for their summer holidays in two days or in a week or in two weeks, you can say, oh, look, if we can just control the debate on the House, on the, on the, on the floor of the Senate, then we can, you know, kill this piece of legislation and push it on to the, to the next session. Um, that the name for this technique, though, uh, originates from the 1850s, um, which is to say that, that even though there's theoretically a filibuster before that, it isn't called a filibuster. The name actually comes from the Dutch word for pirate, um, and which then gets sort of morphed into English from Dutch to Spanish and to, to English. Uh, but in the 1850s, the primary... Well, who are the filibusters of the 1850s, David? Well, so the, 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 original, the, the original usage in English uh, for filibusters was, was not about this technique in the Senate. It's for uh, basically guys who, who led private armies to try to take over South American countries. Uh, yeah, and, North Americans. North Americans, yeah. mostly Amer people from the U.S. South. Yeah. Uh, probably the most famous is William Walker, who is, I believe, from Tennessee, who was a, by profession a doctor, actually attended the University of Edinburgh briefly, um, who leads an invasion of Mexico at one point, Nicaragua at another point, talks about invading Cuba. He ends up getting executed. Those guys were labeled as filibusters. And so essentially the assumption, the association is that they are pirates. And a key... A key element of that is most of those filibusters, those filibusters, mm. not the senators, are seeking to spread slavery. Oh, yeah. So they're seeking to expand the slave empire in the 1840s and 50s. To, to, to conquer uh, places where slavery had been abolished or where, 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 and to establish American hegemony over Latin American and you know, spread slavery much like it had spread into Texas and, and into the Mexican So session. when it's being applied to these, so, so if that's the origin of the term in American English, yes. when it's applied to people in the Senate, I'm guessing it's not a compliment. No, it's it's, it's, it's meant as when they first used it in the 1850s. It's meant as an insult. You were saying you are like these, uh, you know, paramilitary guys who are trying to sort of overthrow Latin American governments, and you are a pirate. You are hijacking the the affairs of the Senate and thereby the affairs of the American Republic. Right? You are usurping, um, you know, the, the the power of the Senate by by just babbling incessantly on the floor so so where does the heroic version of this come from the you know the frank capper mr Just smith goes to washington, washington. or aaron sorkin's stackhouse filibuster um so i mean the, the thing about the filibuster in, in the 19th century is, is you know it doesn't happen very often they're never successful like the the people who filibuster in the 1840s and 1850s they don't work. I mean, they, they're able to postpone votes on bills, but they don't actually are able to defeat them. Um, there's a series, but it's only really after 1880 that, that the filibuster starts to be successful. And it's used by, by two different groups of people. Um, it's used by white Southerners to uh, oppose civil rights legislation. So there, there are uh, filibusters against a, a voting rights law, for instance, in 1890, the white Southerners filibuster. Um, there, but there's also progressives who filibuster uh, in in the uh, early part of the, the 20th century. Um, and so there's some people who point to that, and because people tend to like some of the uh, you know progressives and see them as as heroic do-gooders. Um, 
one famous example or one interesting example is, is uh, Bob LaFollette uh, has a filibuster in, in 1908. He is often seen as one of the more important progressives in the Senate, somebody who is fighting for good government, fighting for, uh, you know, uh, cleaning up corruption and what have you. And um, he engages in a, a filibuster, uh, speaks for 18 hours on the floor of the Senate. This is about a currency bill he didn't like, I believe. Uh, the intriguing thing about this filibuster is that over the course of the 18 hours, he gets pretty hungry. He has an aide to go get him some, 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 some sandwiches. He wants turkey sandwiches and eggnog from the Senate commissary. What time of year was this? This is in June. So it's like... So it's, it's not Christmas egg. It's, it's, it's 90 degrees in the, in the floor of the Senate. I don't know. He thought maybe the eggs and the milk would sort of sustain him. I don't know how much booze they put in or not. Probably not enough. Because he eats the turkey sandwiches. He has a sip of the eggnog. He says, this eggnog tastes off. Eggnog always tastes, tastes off. off. <laughs> Especially in June. Um, but then he has another big sip and he gets sick. And, 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 and there's a debate about whether someone tried to poison him with the eggnog because they find that the eggnog had all kinds of stuff in it. Whether he was poisoned or not, that's a matter of some uh, people have, have, have hypothesized. It's probably just bad eggnog because eggnog is bad, at least in my mind, under the best of circumstances. But especially in June, it's really... Yeah, yeah. I've never, ever heard of anybody drinking eggnog at another time of year other than at a Christmas party. Yeah, the, 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 the end it's of an the alcohol 19th, delivery system. Well, yeah, but the end of the 19th, early part of the 20th century, people had bad tastes in drinks. Um, you know, I think, when as to your question is, when does it get this heroic uh, sort of association? I think Frank Capra's 1939 film that you mentioned, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, is really the, sort of the, the... It's a great movie. It's a great movie, but actually a movie that, when it came out... People in the Senate hated. There were complaints about that film in the Senate because they said, look, the film makes the Senate out to be corrupt and it makes um, you know, Jimmy Stewart's character to be heroic. He's like the one honest guy. He makes the rest of us look like crooks. And they said, this is an un-American film. Uh, and so there were deep complaints about this fil that film in, um, in, in the actual U.S. Senate when, when it comes out, and, and they complain to the studio, and they say that Frank Capra, the director, was a communist or was putting out pro-communist propaganda. Um, so the world's greatest deliberative body has a thin skin. skin. <laughs> well, and, and there's all kinds of interesting international angles to how that film was was released. Like the the Nazis banned it, but then like the Soviets, like the Soviets got a copy of it when they occupied. Germany at the, at the end of the war because they had it in some vault and then it became very popular in the Soviet Union in the 1950s and this sort of example. Really? Yeah, so so it's a weird, you know, but that's a film that, that sort of makes this thing that at that point hadn't really been used for any good purpose that I've been able to ascertain, but makes it into a heroic event uh, that is was you know and I think part of it is it's a very dramatic event because you know he basically collapses in the film after trying to sort of stand up for stand up against corruption and what have you. Um, it's a boys club or something. I yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I just don't remember the plot. Uh, it, it, it's a watch the film. It's a good film. It's a great but, movie. I but, mean, Frank Capra's a great filmmaker. But but making you know and it's inspired in part by some of the corruption in, in the Warren G. Harding administration very loosely. Uh, but making a good film about lawmaking is difficult, right? And so, they, you, you know, just like as you point out, they, they use this technique again, the West Wing. Uh, you know, it, it's good drama because 
it's good drama. And, and when we've had actual in-person filibusters, it's garnered lots of media attention because 99% of what the Senate does is really super boring and tedious unless you're super into inside baseball kinds of stuff. When somebody's delivering a filibuster like, say, Strom Thurmond, you know, they put it on television because, you know, you know unless you have... Uh, somebody beating somebody over the head with a cane on the floor of the Senate. There isn't that much drama in the Senate. Um, yeah, so Thurmond, of course, is the, in 1957, he, he filibusters for 24 hours and 18 minutes, which is the record. Yeah. But uh, he, he went did, in a steam room beforehand to sweat out all, so he wouldn't have to go to the bathroom. So like a high school he de- wrestler. He dehydrated himself beforehand. So, uh, but he did that in opposition to the 1957 Civil Rights Act. Which is far more typical than the Frank Capra version in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Right. right? So, so the you know if you you look at, at at when the filibuster has been used most often in in the twentieth century, it's against civil rights legislation or against anti lynching legislation. So there's a filibuster of anti lynching legislation in 1922, 1935, 1938. There's filibusters against poll tax prohibitions, 1942, 44, and 46. Civil rights legislation, 46, 50, 57, 60, 62, 64, 65, 66, 68, 72, and 75. So there's, I mean, that's the, you know, deep, if you want to say like, what's this tool been used for, that's the primary reason that people have filibustered things. Um, there have been some changes, though, in the rules. And I think there's one moment we need to talk about where uh, there is a pretty... There, well, there's really two moments in which the rules change significantly. One is in 1917, um, in which there is a filibuster uh, over uh, arming U.S. merchant ships. Obviously, this is during the First World War. It's after the Zimmerman uh, Telegraph has come to light. Wilson is, is you know... And many people are pushing for the United States to enter the First World War. There's a handful of people, though, in the Senate that don't want it. And so after the House passes a bill and the majority of the Senate wants to pass a bill, a handful of senators stop it. Because at that point, you know, you really only needed to control the floor with two or three guys, theoretically. And Woodrow Wilson goes off on the Senate. He, he gives a very lengthy speech, published in all the newspapers. And he says, you, this Senate's a joke, right? Like, if, if the majority of people in the United States want something, if the majority of the House wants something, if, if the majority of the Senate wants something, two or three guys just saying, putting, you know, putting their heads in the sand, saying, no, we're not doing it, that's not a way to run a legislature. Uh, and he pushes for the Senate to change its rules, and it does change its rules in 1917 uh, to have what's called a cloture vote, which is basically the vote to end debate. Uh, and then they have the rule, I think this, the, the, the benchmark is two-thirds majority, um, That's right. which is a predecessor for the current standard, which is uh, a 60-vote majority. Right, so so this is an important um, transitional moment, if you will, because mm. so in 1805, after 1805, theoretically, mm. there's no limit on debate at all. You could really just talk something, you could talk forever. Yes. Um, in After 1917... Theoretically, and this is the predecessor to the current situation, mm. which is why it's important to, to take a moment with it, with this cloture vote, which means that if 66 senators vote in favor of... 67. 67, thank you. Well, and, actually, less than that because you have four senators then, but yeah, yeah. We're bad at math. We're focusing on the wrong thing here, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> if two-thirds of the senators vote in favor of ending the debate, it can be ended. So mm. it's now possible to end debate, but it's not done by a straight majority. 
And then, and that's what's in place. Although what's interesting is all those filibusters mm. you just mentioned, all those years you, you recited a mm. few minutes ago, were all after this. So, yeah, so yeah. it doesn't kill the filibuster um, necessarily. And then it's in, what, 1975 that we get the current rule, which is now it's 60 senators instead. It's three-fifths instead of two-thirds. So yeah. this is a kind of concession, if you will, to make it slightly easier. Easier, right. The difference is, it seems to me, David, and this is in part because of what happened in the 1970s, hmm. that, that they don't even have to speak anymore. Right. They just, the, the threat of a filibuster is enough to, to, to kill to kill things. Why is that? Well, I mean, there's a couple of changes that happen uh, in the 70s, I think, sort of create this this framework. Um and it starts in 1970 when, when Mike Mansfield and, and Robert Byrd, um, the previous senator from West Virginia, um, make a series of, ref of reforms to the Senate rules about, about how the filibuster is going to work and about how debate's going to happen. One is they create a two-track system. Under the old system, if somebody was, you know, the Senate only dealt with one issue at a time, and if somebody was filibustering, that effectively meant not only that they hold on that piece of legislation, it meant a hold on everything. The Senate couldn't do anything at all. Um, under the two-track system, basically, they set up a system where they can have you know debate on issue X in the morning and debate on issue Y in the afternoon. And so if there's a filibuster on issue X, they can still do other stuff, right? And so the idea was, and this is, happens in the aftermath of all these filibusters about civil rights legislation, which held up civil rights legislation. You know, if we think about the you know, the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964, that was held up for 74 days. That's 74 days in which not only is the Senate not dealing with the civil rights legislation, it's not dealing with anything, it's not dealing with anything right? It's not, it's not confirming judges, it's not confirming, you know, uh, political appointees, it's not ratifying treaties. Sorry, 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 I just want to remind everybody, when we say Senate, we mean... World's greatest deliberative body trademark. <laughs> Not doing anything for 74 Different days. days. <laughs> well, I mean, they're listening to Strom Thurmond at all babble about whatever it is they're talking about. Um, so the two-track system, you know, was designed to sort of remedy that uh, and to make it so the Senate could, could at least function. Uh, you know, they also create this, uh, they change the sort of threshold. Uh, so it's a, a three-fifths majority, a number which the Senate really should be thinking very hard about it, ever using that number again uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but they do set up the system whereby, you know, if if it's clear that 41 senators don't want a piece of legislation to, to go forward, they can effectively put a hold on it. So you've had a rise in, in what's called the, you know, the, the stealth filibuster or the silent filibuster uh, that, you know, since then people have not actually had to go on the floor and and talk incessantly uh, like Strom Thurmond did. Um, and part of that, I think, is the Senate's desire to, you know, they recognize that those kinds of events, especially in the 1960s, harmed the Senate as an institution, uh, but they also recognize that that was not necessarily the best use of their time. The other thing to recognize is the Senate works very differently in the 70s and 80s and since then than it did beforehand. You know, in the 19th and early part of the 20th century, much of the work of the Senate was done on the floor of the Senate. And now most of the work of the Senate is done in committees. Right. You know, and so if somebody is giving a, if you watch C-SPAN, you watch somebody giving a speech on the floor of the Senate, when they pan to the audience, there's not any other senators there listening, right? You know, whereas in the, the 19th century uh, and early part of the 20th century, there was often... Uh, 
you know, a decent number of senators who were actually on the floor because that was where the work was done. You know, and there there were filibusters in the past. Uh, I think Huey Long did a filibuster where he repeatedly demanded that 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 um, senator from Louisiana, senator from Louisiana, thank you, um, that 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 the Senate call roll to make sure all the people showed up, and when some of them fell asleep while he was filibustering, he he asked the uh, you know, the person presiding over the Senate, can you wake those people up so they can listen to me? And he said, no, that's cruel and unusual punishment. We can't require people to listen to you. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the Senate functions differently now, and I think the silent filibuster is part and parcel of that. Yeah, I, I think there's another thing about the 1970s that's important. Between the kind of 50s to 90s, mm. there were centrists, there were moderates in both parties, and there was a kind of broad center... Because uh, one of the arguments in favor of the filibuster is it protects minorities. Sorry, the main argument is allegedly it protects minority opinions. Mm. The second one is it encourages bipartisanship, which is what we're hearing a lot about from Joe Manchin at the moment. Whether that's true or not is debatable. However, in that in the middle of the twentieth century, there was scope for bipartisan cooperation. Or there was more bipartisan cooperation. Let's put it that way mm. than there is today where it's almost impossible to cross the aisle. I mean, the, the sorting that's gone on in the political parties is such that mm. it, 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 it's, it's, it's a huge political risk to cross the aisle, frankly. Mm. And so, so the belief was if you had to get 60 votes, you would have to build a coalition that's broadly representative, not this is a way for a minority of senators from a relatively small handful of states that have low populations to stop the government from operating. Yeah, that that's the argument in favor, yeah. and that kind of operated in the seventies and eighties. You're look, you're giving me a skeptical I mean, look. I think it, I, I, mean, I can't read you. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that that happened that you know, we're thinking about especially about the the the, the filibusters of of civil rights legislation. You know, the the the, the politics there of race sometimes cut across parties right. in that's interesting right. ways, and so you know, there there were deeply. Div- Sometimes bipartisanship was bipartisanship for pretty bad stuff. Um, but also for good stuff, because just, what you got was you had very conservative white supremacist just, Democrats, mm. Southern Democrats, who didn't vote with the Northern mm. and Western Democratic Party, but you had liberal Republicans who did. did so, sure. so it did come both ways. Yeah, to be sure, to be sure. And now these, there's just been a great sorting of political parties by ideology mm. and other things and belief systems that... It doesn't allow for that. Yeah, and, and there, there isn't, you know, with, with earmarks being dead, and with so you know, uh, it's very hard to sort of peel off those those centrists, those hand, you know, one could imagine a previous era in which somebody you know sidles up to, to Joe Manchin and says, "We know you're not sure certain about this. However, we'll give you a bridge. We'll we'll, we'll give you three bridges. We'll give you yeah. three bridges and a highway. West Virginia will have the best bridges." Um, <laughs> And, you know, and, and and that was often a, you know those kinds of, of enticements are are largely gone, um, and so one of the things you've seen is a whole lot of these you know the number of silent filibusters has gone through the roof, right? And the, often you know the bills don't since they don't get debated on the floor, people don't even know that bills have been filibustered, right? So at least in the fifties and sixties when White supremacists filibuster things. You knew about it because it was. They had to stand up and do it. Yeah, they stand up and do it. And you saw it in the evening news. Now, you know, forty-one people can put a hold on a piece of legislation, uh, and you don't even know the legislation exists. Well, they don't even have to do that, do they? Because we now know. Okay, so in the current Senate, 
the Democrats have 50 votes with Kamala Harris as the vice president as the tiebreaking mm. vote. So they know, given that the Republicans won't cooperate on anything, mm. Mitch McConnell's made that clear, that they have to have Kirsten Sinema, Joe Manchin, etc., mm. to do anything. And because they are as yet unwilling to do so, it's the threat of a filibuster alone is killing legislation. Sure. Seems to me. Yeah, I think it's sort of more... Now, I mean, that being said, this, the filibuster is not as strong today in some ways as it was even a decade ago, because the Senate has started to step back from the filibuster in some ways. Um, in 2013, for instance, they removed the filibuster for uh, executive branch appointments and judicial appointments, except for the Supreme Court. In 2017, they got rid of the filibuster for the Supreme Court appointments. Yep. So actually, if you can imagine, you know, we can think about the the three Trump appointees to the Supreme Court. It's not a coincidence that the Senate gets rid of this in 2017. Um, those people would not have been confirmed to the Supreme Court had the Senate kept that part of the filibuster because you would not have gotten 60 senators to vote for, for any of the three Trump appointees to the Supreme Court. Um, so, you know, I think that, that the the... If one is optimistic about about the death of the filibuster, uh, you know there are hints that there are people in the Senate who, who are recognized that, that this filibuster is, is really detrimental for the Senate working as a actual legislative body. You know, I think you're right, but I want to make a counter argument, which yeah. is, which is, the current Republican Party is not really interested in governing. Mm. In, in 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 terms of enacting big government yeah, programs, programs, things sure. like that. And what they are really interested in is the judiciary and the courts, mm. and so they've got what they want. Yeah, <laughs> in the with the current rules, um, the Democrats are more interested in the federal government governing. Mm. The Republicans are more content to let that governing be done by the states, if at all. Yeah, and so it's easier for them to play defense or just keep the current sure. rules because they don't want to achieve they don't necessarily want to want to achieve the same things that the Democrats do. Mm -hmm. The Democrats require change. The Republicans and the current the current arrangement suits the Republicans because it allows them to block change. Mm -hmm. Particularly because they've got what they want, which is judicial appointments, which is really yeah. what they care about. The one thing that makes me um, and the other we have another I was gonna say problem. Problem is the wrong word. Another fact that's really significant, I think, is the Senate used to be quite stable. So between 1933 and 1979, I think, the Democrats controlled the Senate for all but four years. Mm. Since, 19, since 2000, the Senate's changed hands five times. Yeah. So one reason that the minority party is unwilling to go along with change as they hope next election we're going to will be in charge again it'll be fine and both parties have felt that way for a long time having said all that i think change is coming i mm. think the the inherent undemocraticness of this um that's not a word i'm quite sure no, it's a word. <laughs> we can make up words. It's fine. um you know it, it's inherently undemocratic nature is so obvious to people and unlike reforming the electoral college uh, unlike things that require constitutional amendments this simply requires a majority of the senate to vote on a rule change and it doesn't require 60 senators mm. it, it, it's not the senate rules are not subject to the filibuster right. so if for example 
one if the Democrats were to get fifty two senators, yeah. well, probably fifty three because of Cinema and Mansion, yeah. um, they could simply vote to change the rules. Well, you know, there was an interesting moment in January where there was a debate about the Senate changing its rules, and they were debating about whether the filibuster would be part of this. But the Senate establishes its rules for that set term at the beginning of the term. But at that point, it was 50-50, but Mike Pence was still vice president. Right. And so there was some very, you know, like very complicated sort of, can we change this particular rule now or, or, or not, given that they knew what was going to happen. Um, I mean, one of the consequences of, of the filibuster, I think, and obviously this is indirectly, is it has encouraged the growth of, of executive power and the use of executive orders. Because yeah. the president can say, look, the majority of the House wants this, the majority of the American people want this, even whether they do or not. The Senate's dysfunctional, and therefore I'm just going to do it. Right? And we can think about you know, a whole number of, of pieces of, of executive actions that we've talked about in the past, whether that has to do with the border or other things, um, immigration, that the the inaction of the Senate has has thereby increased the power of the presidency uh, in pretty distorting kinds of ways because the president ends up doing sort of legislative work uh, without um, you know actually having legislation approved by by the legislative branch. Yeah, you know, there's some people who have pointed the filibuster as a whole and said this is actually unconstitutional because the filibuster does give it's not a Republican form of government and it doesn't actually allow for the majority to rule. Um, and whether that's actually, you know, pass muster in courts or not, who knows. Um, so 10 years from now, David, do you think we have the filibuster? I think that depends on who wins the elections in the next 10 years. Okay, but that's not an answer. Yeah, sure. yeah I, I would hope not, because I think it's, it's a, it, it's, I, I, you know, other than, than in, in film and television, I, I there's not, that many good examples of the filibuster ever having been used really for principal purposes. It's either used to maintain white supremacy, and there's dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of that. Mitch McConnell says it doesn't have a racist history. He's just wrong about that. Um, he should know better. I'm sure he does know he better. He does know better. He's just lying. Um, or it's used for stupid partisan stuff. You know, it's... Um, one of the things that Huey Long filibustered about was he there was a uh, he he wanted to he was a moderately corrupt Louisiana politician maybe that's redundant um, he wanted to be able to control political appointments in Louisiana and they were going to amend a bill that was going to put that power uh, in the hands of the federal government he didn't want that and so he was just doing the filibuster so he had you know so he could be corrupt in the way he wanted to be corrupt. Um, you know, it tends to be over stupid stuff or who's publishing the Congressional Globe or other kinds of things. It's not over um, meaningful principal pieces of legislation particularly. Um, so I'm hoping it's gone. What about you? What do you think? Is I think it's going to go. I, I mean, if you look at the past 10 years, they've been whittling around it and chipping mm. away at it you know, with, with various exceptions. And... I think those exceptions help make it unsustainable. I think the undemocratic, the inherently undemocratic nature of it, particularly mm. because of the undemocratic the nature, nature of the, the Senate. Senate right? like it's but a... this is something that can be done. And I think increasingly Senate candidates are going to be put on the mm. spot about this. 
you're right. This is all contingent on electoral outcomes. So if it's a uh, Republican-dominated Senate, uh, for the reasons I just said a moment ago, in, over the next ten years, then it won't happen. But I think, um, I, I think, I think there's a better than even chance it will be gone in ten years' time. All right. Well, we will we will check back in in ten yeah. years' time. Twenty thirty. Oh, Twenty thirty. Reunion show to get get all the things we got wrong uh, on the record. Right. Uh, time for last drops, Frank. What you got? I want to recommend a, an uh, essay by David Blight, who's a historian in your field yes. at Yale, David. Uh, David Blight has written an essay for The New Yorker. It's in the current issue of The New Yorker called The Fog of History Wars. Mm. And what he does in this is he, he's reflecting on the current controversy over the 1619 Project and the 1776 Report and all that stuff. Um but he's placing he's putting actually putting controversies over history hmm. uh, in in some historical context. And it's a very uh, it's a short essay, but it's a very it's very David Blight's an outstanding historian. It's a very good essay. Um, and and he reviews a number of controversies from the 90s, for example, hmm. uh, looking at the controversy over national history standards in the 90s and the Nola Gay exhibit uh, at the Smithsonian, and he talks about how this played out, both how those played out in the media and in politics mm. and in culture, and in and, the classroom, and in the classroom, and, yeah. and yes, that's right, and um, offers us some insight into uh, what may or may not happen in the coming months over sixteen nineteen and all yeah. that. So yeah, and actually, basically anything David Blight writes is usually no, no, worth reading. Yes, so um, usually yeah. multiple times, right? Yes, uh, so. he, and he used to be a high school history teacher before he became an academic. So oh, that's he, interesting. So he, so That's very has, interesting. Has some background there. What have you got, David? Uh, so I, I want to endorse. This is my first avian endorsement, I think, ever. Uh, I, I want to uh, endorse a, a a bird and a bird's Twitter feed. Uh, this is a bird called Newbie, who is a resident uh, of, of my hometown of New York. Uh, but what is interesting about Newbie is Newbie is Joanne Friedman's bird, uh, Joanne Friedman, whose new podcast. Uh, with Heather Cox Richardson now and then, which I endorsed last week. Uh, Newbie, I don't think has made an appearance on their podcast yet, although they've made reference to uh, him as, uh, I think he's a rescue parakeet or something. Um, but he has a very amusing Twitter feed that if you are, many of you probably, if you are on Twitter, probably follow Joanne Friedman. Read those two tw- Twitter feeds in, in, in concert with each other. They, they, they are amusing commentary on, on, on the life of a historian and her bird. Or a bird and his historian, as as one might frame. Yeah, and he's very very literate. High he's levels of, you know, very. You uh, know, understands you know. historiography. Loves Mary Poppins. Yeah. You know, there's a, it's a it's a, there's not enough. You know, there, there there's lots of animal uh, Twitter feeds. I mean, I'm not. I don't follow very many animals. I think actually that's the only animal I follow. <laughs> but you know, I, I think you know you you're, you've got a family dog. Maybe the, the, we need to have more historian pets. Uh, invested uh, so that we know, uh, know the inner thoughts thereof. Or not. not. <laughs> or not. Right. Cheers, Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.